Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John Cunningham is a friend of mine and a brother in Christ, and he can help you with financial decisions and future planning. He's been a big help to me and my family, and I commend him to you. You can reach him at 205-913-1720. I am so thankful you're here, so let's get started. All right, so today we will wrap up our short three-part series on marriage. This last entry into the series includes two things that are somewhat unique from the previous. We'll be talking about a myth that a lot of people believe that you need to just toss out, and then we will finish in the Word of God looking at the best passage on marriage that's ever existed. It's a good time for me to tell you that today's episode in particular is not just for married people, no matter who you care about in this life. If things are going well or you're struggling, I hope this passage will become a deep and abiding treasure in your life. All right, so I have not forgotten that I promised you no lengthy recaps. I promise you I will not use up half of our time today recapping everything we've already talked about. However, since this is it on the marriage series, let me walk you through in a couple of minutes how far we have come, and then we'll spend a little time on the myth and a lot of time on the passage. It all began with you. You are at the center of every experience you ever have, You are a primary instigator, for better or for worse, in every conversation you ever have and in every relationship that God has given you. So naturally, if you're looking to improve those relationships, like marriage, of course, you start with the mirror. Who am I in all of this? What is my relationship with God? Am I ready to take responsibility for the things that I say and how impactful they are on the people in my life. In that first episode, we also added the triangle imagery. You've heard me talk a lot about that. Here are two circles, a husband and a wife. They get separated, a bunch of stuff gets in between them, and it becomes very easy to blame that separation on the other person or the stuff. What we really need to do is draw a circle at the top in the middle with God's name in it, And if you can elevate yourself towards God, and I would argue that he can pull you and lift you and help you come to him, and your spouse is able to do that in Bible study or prayer or worship or humility, you will always find one another there above all of the life circumstances. You won't need them to go away to stand together. That concept led us into the strategy from last week's episode. It is you two against the world. You two have decided to become one flesh. You made a promise. And that means if there must be a fight, if there must be a battle, if a line is ever drawn in the sand, you two are always standing on the same side of it. It doesn't mean full stop total agreement. People on one side of a battle line don't agree on everything, except that they will stand together. 
and that they have a mutual enemy, and it is not one another. To help with that, we revealed the secret last week. It's still my favorite. I would say the secret and the passage are the two best of the whole list, and it was really simple. Quality time. Setting aside special attention for and with one another without distractions. Not the television, not children, nothing. It can be taking a walk. It can be going out to dinner. Eventually, it may be leaving town together a couple of times a year. It was that kind of behavior that brought you together to begin with. And it is those kinds of choices that will keep you growing stronger and maybe even repair some of what has been broken. I have to tell you, I recorded that episode late last Sunday night. I went home. Everyone was still awake and everything, but I looked my wife squarely in the eyes and I said, I just recorded this and I want to be with you. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to go. And I'm telling you, I did not oversell it last week. I am addicted to that and it is one of the purest joys in my life. 24 years of marriage, and it legit feels like we've been dating for 24 days. Please take that how it is intended. I'm not comparing our marriage to yours, and I'm not intending to boast. I just want you to know that how it began is how it can continue to be. But we have to continue to do the things we did at the beginning. Okay, that recap was a little lengthy, but the myth won't take very long today. The fifth thing in our series is the most commonly told, ridiculous, debunkable myth associated with marriage. You've probably heard it a hundred times, sometimes in a mild setting where it is reasonably true, but for the most part, it's just not. The great myth of our time is that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I am an opinionated guy about things I'm passionate about, so I'll give it to you straight. That is about the most ridiculously idiotic thing that has ever been said. Think about the idea of it. You and I maybe are having a few problems, so what we will do is stay apart. We will walk away from one another. Let's begin building new normals apart, getting acclimated to life not with one another, and the result of walking away from each other will be the desire to be together. I can't think of a scenario where that makes sense. Imagine Summer and I are 100 miles apart. It's been a rough year. We're not on the same page. We want to get back together. So I decide to walk one direction, and she walks the other, and we hope that we can meet on the other side of the earth, thousands of miles away, in the middle of the ocean. How is walking away from each other supposed to bring us together? Now, you might say, well, Chris, absence does make the heart grow fonder. When I leave town for a few days, I really miss my spouse and I just want to be with them. Look, I feel that too. And let me add some caveats to this. Perhaps in a healthy relationship, for a short period of time, on a needful or unique occasion... Like if I was going to preach a gospel meeting or she was going to visit her family. Sure, it can have a positive impact. But even then, the absence isn't progress. It just reminds you that you've made progress or it makes you want to get back together and grow together. It's a reminder, but it's not actually taking steps. In fact, this new normal thing needs to be discussed. Maybe I leave town for a week. She always fixes my breakfast 
And maybe you consider this sad and pathetic, but she even lays out my clothes for church. I know, I'm the worst. I get that a lot. But I go off in a meeting, and by the middle of the week, I'm getting my own breakfast. I'm ironing my own clothes. I'm beginning to learn a new normal that doesn't include her. Now, that's all super harmless, because I'll be back at the end of the week and probably should start ironing my clothes anyway. But imagine if our marriage was in trouble. If we just weren't seeing eye to eye, and we weren't enjoying our time together, so we decided to spend less time together. Don't communicate, or work on our strategy, or dive back into quality time. Let's just be apart. What it begins to do on day one is build a new normal of fulfilled needs, progress, and joy apart from one another. That's dangerous. Absence may make the heart grow fonder in some settings, but it must never be used as an effort to mend what is broken, to strengthen what is weak, or to bridge a gap. It becomes a form of escapism and counterproductive, and it literally opens up space for Satan to work. It can quickly create a new normal of deepest fulfillment apart And that is a super dangerous thing. And we could add lots of passages to this. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 about the physical relationship in marriage. He said, don't separate that for long. Certainly not as a means to make things better. Only in the case of prayer or something that is holy, a fast of sorts. But come back together soon, lest you give Satan an opportunity. So I won't spend all day on this. But beware if the way you cope with issues in your marriage is finding joy apart from your spouse. Think about that. Because while it might be a nice escape, that's all it becomes. An escape from the work that really needs to be done. If you would like to do that work, and listen, it doesn't matter how you would rate your marriage 1 to 10. It may be a 1 a 5, a 10, or somewhere in between, putting in the right kind of work can raise it to a new and better level. The Bible doesn't just talk about loving one another. It talks about increasing and abounding in our love for one another. There is one passage that has helped Summer and me do this more than any other, more than the role passages of Ephesians 5, though they are very good, This passage in 1 Peter 3 is as good as it gets. And I'm not even talking about the first seven verses. Those are typical marriage verses, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, about wives being submissive and a man treating his wife as a weaker vessel. The good stuff starts right after that, and I want to read it to you now. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That's it. The six things listed here that I have tucked into the sixth and final point is where your work begins and where it flourishes. Listen to this list. 
Number one, be harmonious. Number two, be sympathetic. Number three, be brotherly. Number four, be kind. Number five, be humble in spirit. And number six, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. I want to break those down for you in quick order. I feel like we've done this in an episode previously. Doesn't bother me, though. If it's been longer than a few weeks since you've looked at these six things, welcome home. We'll look at it again. But let me add what comes after it in case I run out of time. Verse 10 says, For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. I like all of that stuff. I like love. I like life. I like good days. I like peace. And I love it in my marriage. I've got some sermons out there that dig into this in greater detail. If you'd like links to those, just reach out to me. EmersonK78 at me.com, and I'll get it right to you. In the meantime, here is a short journey through these six things. Number one, be harmonious. We have got to get on the same page. I know there are things we disagree about, so let's start with the things we agree on. I did an episode a couple of years ago called Zipping the Jacket. You can't ram two sides of a jacket together, but if you start at the bottom and you just find two little pieces that fit and you build from there, you can pull everything back together as one. In your marriage, Find things you both agree upon. Get some yes-yes conversation going. Find some harmony and then work on your differences. Number two, be sympathetic. This is the simple act of seeing things through the other person's view. How do you sound, not from your side, but from their side? What do things look like after the day that they have had? What do you look like to them after the day they have had? If we can take just a few moments after a long day at work, and instead of walking through the door with all of these expectations of what they should do for me, for just a moment, if I could see things from their side, what are they feeling? What has she experienced? What does she need? That's sympathy. It's seeing their heart. It would change the way I behaved, and eventually everyone's needs would be met. Number three, brotherly. I love this. It doesn't matter if your mate is a Christian or not. Treat them with the kind of love that you would treat a brother or sister in Christ. This is a very simple exercise. I want you to think for a moment of the sweetest older person at the church where you worship, a person that you love to hug who makes you smile, and who you love to serve. It's really simple. If you wouldn't say it that way to that person, don't say it that way to your spouse. If that sweet older person got onto you for something, corrected you, how would you respond? That's the way you should respond to your spouse. If we would just treat the person we've given our entire life to and taken responsibility for their life, if we would just treat them with half of the respect that we treat Christians, we would see that caring love we discussed last week grow instantaneously. 
And of course, if your mate is a Christian, even more so, we should treat them like a brother or sister in Christ. Number four is very simple. Be kind-hearted. It won't take long for me to discuss it with you, but I'm convinced it's just about more important than everything else. Being nice. Being courteous and kind. Being considerate. Having a soft heart, not a hard heart. Doesn't matter what's happened. I will not let it callous my heart towards you. I will be soft and vulnerable and kind. And yes, it puts me at some risk if we're battling against one another, but I don't want that anymore. I'm willing to be vulnerable with you and soft-hearted because I believe in us. Number five, be humble in spirit. This is the idea of seeing yourself as the least important person in the room, and it's awesome. The idea of doing something kind for the other person just because it is your privilege to serve the other person, not expecting a single thing in return, just taking the low place of servitude. You might say, that won't make for a good marriage. You want to bet? If you do that, it triggers similar behavior in the people around you. And when we are vying to be the greater servant in the room of one another, every need gets met. Be humble in spirit. And then lastly, sometimes mistakes get made. One or both of us will say something that ought not have been said. Life is hard. Do not return insult for insult. Whenever your mate says something wrong, say something right. It is rarely the first thing said that causes all of the problems and ruins the night. It's the power of the first response that tells the story. The first response can diffuse the situation, can stop it right where it is, can redirect it, or it can amplify the mistake. And the second person is creating all the problems and blaming the first for what they initially said. When your mate says or does something they should not have said or done, give a blessing instead. Take over the narrative. Put love back in the middle. And you watch what happens. So I know I went through all of those things quickly with you. And again, you can reach out and I can give you more information. But I recommend you put this verse somewhere you can find it. And all week this week, put your finger on at least one of these six things, at least one, and make that your directive for the day. That may be all that it takes to restore hope or deepen love in your marriage. I want to love life and see good days in my home, don't you? One of these things today must never be believed, and the other must be trusted in every day. Take your union to the next level by considering the myth and the passage. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the program, please remember to share with your family and your friends. Also, you can go to excelstillmore.life to sign up for emails, order the three-month journals, or just catch up on old episodes. So until next time, let me leave you with this. Whatever you choose to do today, in the name of the Lord Jesus, excel still more.